Open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And while you're doing that, I'm going to just quickly review because we're talking about um, our calling. And we looked, we began back in John 15 where we saw that Jesus told his disciples, You did not choose me, I chose you. And I chose you and ordained you so that you might bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. We've talked about what it means to be chosen. We've talked, we've gone and looked in Matthew 4 and how at Jesus' actual choosing of four of his disciples. And it says when he came to them, it was very, very instructive because when he came to them, he found them being as fishermen fishing. They caught fish. We looked in Luke's account of it and found that they didn't catch anything that day. And Jesus comes to them and he says, his, his whole calling was this, come follow me. And that's his calling for us. His calling for us is just so simple, it's to follow him. We saw that when they followed him, the very first thing they did is they left their nets. They left everything that had been of, they based their life on. Up until that point, they left it in order to follow him because we've seen that they, you can't follow him and hang on to who you were and what you've had before. In order to follow him, you have to go where he's going. So you've got to be willing to let go of everything that holds you to where you used to be. Sometimes it's things, sometimes it's position, sometimes it's our reputation, sometimes it's relationships, whatever it may be, to be willing to let go of it in order to follow Him because you can't answer His calling unless you follow Him. The next thing we saw is He said, if you follow Me, I will make you into something. And we talked about the fact that we try to make ourselves into something so we can get some credit for it. And he said, no, I, you've got to follow me and I will make you. And then we've looked, what we're looking at now is what he wants to make us into, which is fishers of men. And we've talked about what that means. And we're, this is really what we are focused on now. We saw in John chapter 4, Jesus is an example of what it means to be a fisher of men. Basically, it means drawing people into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus was sitting by that well in, in, in Sychar, and we saw him, his encounter with this woman who he had no right to talk to. She had no right to expect him to talk to her. And how he fished for her soul. And the result is it touched her enough so that it, she went into the city and was able to convince the men to come back out and hear what he had to say. When they came out and heard what he had to say, they invited him into the city. For two days he stayed there. And their final report was, We began believing in you because of the words... She said, but now we believe in you because we've heard your words. So she brought them to an experience with him, and out of that experience with him, they began to develop their own relationship with him, and that's what holds us in. That's what keeps us solid. That's following him. Amen. And last week we began to look at whether we're adequate for this, and that took us to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, actually. Before we went there, we did go to uh, Acts chapter 1. We're not going to turn there now. But Acts chapter 1, verse 8, verse 4 through 8, basically tell, Jesus told these same disciples whom he had chosen, whom he had said, follow me, who had left all their things that had followed him for some three plus years. And now at the end, Jesus has gone to the cross, been raised from the dead, walked among them for about 40 plus days. And in that, at the end of that, he said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem because you're still not equipped. I've called you. You followed me. I've trained you. But you're still not equipped for what I've called you to do. You need to wait in Jerusalem until you've received the promise which I've referred to you, which is to come from the Father, and that is to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He says, then you will receive power so that you can, verse 8 says, you can be witnesses to me. And that's really, see, we've, and now we began to talk last week about to be fishermen, you've got to have bait. We've talked about the fact you can't just throw a hook in the water. You can do it, but you're, the only way you're going to catch a fish is if he accidentally bumps into the hook. <laughs> and some fish have been caught that way. But by and large, fish aren't going to come up to a hook because there's nothing about that hook that interests them. Oh. And that's, in large part, the problem the church has had today. Because from the world's perspective, there's very little we have to offer them that in their eyes they need or they want. Is it because all we appear to be to them is a barbed hook? The book I read years ago, 
I think I referred to it last week. I didn't give you the title because I don't know if we have it in the bookstore. But the book is about grace. Uh, well, I'll tell you what it is. It's called What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. Powerful book about grace. And if I recall correctly, it starts out by, by talking to a girl who would, was uh, um, uh, raised in church and she had completely backslidden her life. Was a, life was a disaster. And he was talking to her. Someone else he interviewed was talking to her. I don't remember. And she said, well, well why, don't you go, why don't you go to church? She said, that's the last place I'd go. Why? Because they'll judge me for what I've been through. That's a barbed hook with no bait on it. You can't catch fish with a barbed hook. We'll probably talk more about that starting next week if we get through what we're going to talk about today. So we saw that, all right, do we have, do we have the bait that it takes? And that took us to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 which we're not going to go into today, but I'll just very quickly remind you of what is in there. Paul is talking to them because they had, had said to him, you know, we really don't think you're qualified to lead us, even though he'd founded the church, and this is the Apostle Paul. Somehow God thought he was worthy to give him two-thirds of the New Testament to, to write, but the church he founded didn't think he was strong enough or, or a spiritual enough leader to guide them. So they basically didn't let him in the church one time when he was going to come to them. So there's a series of letters that go back and forth. And what Paul writes to them in chapter 3 is he said, you know, do I need to give you letters of commendation? If you're going to, to, to a foreign country as a diplomat, you need to present your credentials, your letters. If you're going to some uh, uh, business that you've never, you know, we're going for a job. One of the things they may want is a reference. That's a letter of commendation. Where, where you, somebody writes a letter about you, a character reference. Every once in a while I'm, I'm asked to. I just had to do this a few weeks ago for a ministry. Uh, they wanted a letter of, of, of reference from me, so I wrote them a letter based on what I know of them from firsthand knowledge. And, and so that's what Paul says. you looking for letters of commendation from me? Because then he goes, and if, you're, if you are, you're my letter. Since you are an epistle, a letter, read by all men. So what his whole focus there is, I have invested the gospel in you, and that gospel is at work in you, and that gospel is changing you. You are the proof. You are the written evidence. You are the tangible evidence that this is all real. And see, that's what the world needs to see. Not a barbed hook, but a life that's been changed by what you're offering them. Why should I receive what you're offering him if you're, if you're more miserable than I am? Most, so, so many Christians are so miserable, why would anybody want what you have? I mean, you, ask, you need to ask yourself that question. Somebody looking at my life, are they going to want what I have? And I'm not talking about possessions. I'm talking about, because I know all kinds of people with all kinds of possessions that are the unhappiest people I know. It's not the possessions. It's not the position. It's not the house. It's the inner house. It's what's in going on inside of you. I, if somebody just looks at your life, are they going to want what you have? Because you're the greatest advertisement for what you have. So what are you showing? What's your face showing to people? You know, if you're, if you're, in, in, if you're in the music ministry and you're doing praise and worship, what's your face show? Not what your mouth says. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. You, know, you can quote all the scripture in the world of people, but they're looking at you, at you. You're the billboard for what you believe. What are they seeing? So Paul says, you're our epistle. You're our letter of commendation. You're our tangible evidence of the reality of this because it's been deposited in you. And then he goes to talk about what that is. And he does a contrast. Talks about Moses in the Old Testament. How Moses went up on the mountain. God gave him the Ten Commandments. We talked about that. And when Moses came down off the mountain, the power of the glory of God, the presence of God, being see we don't we can't understand that with our natural mind because because our mind is veiled by our flesh and by our natural understanding in our spirit we can begin to grasp things like that but but God lives like Peter says in unapproachable light the glory of God we sing about His Majesty and glory but it's His He is the source of glory He is the source of life 
And Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights in his actual physical presence. And it was so powerful that when he came down off the mountain, the glory of God had permeated his skin and his clothing. And it it radiated off of him to the point that people couldn't stand in his presence. And we talked about last week, he had to put a veil over his face to cover the glory so people could stand. But then he noticed that that glory began to fade. Why? Because it didn't come from in, the source wasn't in him. The source was he was the was on the mountain where he spent time with the source. But when he got away from the source, the effects of being with that source of life began to fade away. And so it's interesting. You get another insight into Moses. Paul says that that he kept the veil over so people couldn't see that it was fading away. And we talked about coming to church with a veil over us. So people don't realize that we're not where we used to be. But we want people to think we are where we are. See, we're just like Moses. <laughs> and so, but we saw that was in cha- that contrast, but then he ends by saying, but we have a surpassing glory. Because <laughs> our glory is not on a mountain in the middle of the Sinai Desert. Our glory is the Spirit of God that was born into you when you came to Christ. And that's a surpassing glory because that is the same glory that Moses was exposed to on the top of the mountain. So Paul is telling them what Moses experienced on the top of the mountain is actually in you right now. And that's where we are in chapter 4. So we'll pick up in here in chapter 4 again and look at this. Therefore, since we have this ministry, referring to this glory that's been placed in us, as we've received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Don't get me off on that one right now. But by, look at this, manifestation of the truth. The word manifestation simply means to reveal to show so that people can see what's something that's already there. So what he's saying here is there's truth that's been put in us. And what this is all about is manifesting or letting this truth, or we're going to see in a moment or so, this light, let it out, let it known. So he's talking about a manifestation of, or revealing or uncovering of truth. But that by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, referring back again to the veil that Moses wore, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds, now that's the fish we're after, whose minds the God of this age, that's Satan, has blinded. Why? Why is he blinding their eyes? Who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, that just means good news, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So Satan is blinding the eyes of those people who don't yet believe. And as a result, right now they're perishing because they don't yet believe. And he's blinding their eyes so that the light, which is the truth, of the gospel, of the good news, of the glory, the same glory that Moses was experiencing, of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So he's got to try to keep their eyes blinded so they don't see the good news of the light or the truth of this glory of Christ that he wants to shine on them. That's the goal here. And that's why Satan blinds their eyes. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. And this is what we ended up last time. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Now, we've already talked about the fact in chapter 3 that this glory is in us when you come to Christ. 
It's not like Moses. The glory of God was up there on the mountaintop when he left it, and he left the glory on the mountaintop when he came down. So the only glory he had with him was the reflection of what he received by being in the presence, but that faded away. It says at the end of chapter 3, but we have a different glory, and that glory increases in us as we continue to look into this, into the mirror of the Word of God. We talked last time that when you look into the mirror, the Word of God is the only mirror that reflects back to you who you're going to be, not who you look, what, what you put in front of it. This morning when I stood in front of my mirror and combed my hair, when I stood in front of it, it was messed up. Because what I put in front of it was messed up. But that book in your lap right now is God's mirror that has the power to change you into how the mirror sees you, not what you put in front of it. And it ends in chapter 3 by saying, therefore we're changed from glory to glory. It's the process of the glory of God that was put in you when you were saved coming out of you, being revealed, being released out of you. And now we see here in this verse in chapter 4 where he seems to be changing subjects, but he's not. This is the thing I saw last time, last week, while we were doing this, going and got to this point. Verse 6, For it is the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Now that's referring to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 where God creates everything and then he commanded the light to shine out of the darkness. Now, before he commanded the light to shine, everything he created was there. But nobody could see it because there was no light. And so when God spoke and said, let there be light, now we could see what he'd already created. And we're talking about the light of the gospel, the good news of the glory of Christ being seen by people whose eyes are veiled. And what's at stake here? So Paul here says that it is the same God that released the light so we could see His creation by the words, let there be light. Everybody follow me so far? Yes. All right. It's the same God. Look at this. Who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. What's the treasure? The treasure is the glory of God and the light that reveals that glory. And he's saying nothing less than God has put the same God that spoke the light into existence, has put that light, put that glory in you and me, knowing we're earthen vessels. And we ended last time by talking about an earthen vessel is basically a clay pot in their days, those days. Clay pots are subject to cracking, chipping, getting hot, like your life and my life. He's taken this incredible treasure of the presence of God and all His love and all His glory and all His majesty and all His power and all His life and all His hope and all His peace He's deposited in you and me. Clay pots. Or as I said last week, cracked pots. <laughs> but we just discovered one of the beauties of a cracked pot is when there's a crack or a hole, the light can shine through the crack or the hole. So we look at ourselves and say, but I know I got a chip over here and I know I got a little imperfection on this side and I know there's a weakness back in this area and I, but we don't understand it's, well, that disqualifies me no that's a place where the light 
of God's grace and mercy can shine out of us. Because you see, where you've been weak in an area, you can have compassion on others that are weak in that area. Because you've seen God's grace work in your life in that area. And therefore, you're a testimony to others of what God can do with that chip or that nick or that crack or that hole. But we also talked about the fact that God released this light with words. Turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 10. And we're going to get into what this is all about. Everything we've talked about over the last weeks is going to begin to come into focus here. Because now we're going to talk about us. Paul in chapter 9, chapters 1 through 8 are all about the grace of God. I want to go through all the different steps, but it's all about the grace of God, and it's received by faith, and it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 9, he begins to muse a little bit and says, says you know, <laughs> he begins to think of his countrymen, the Jews, and said basically, my heart goes out to them for them to be saved. He said, if I, could, if I could give my soul up to save them, I would do that. That was the love he had for them. And now in chapter 10, he's going to talk about the process by which we are saved. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. See, zeal's not enough. You also have to have knowledge of what God's method is. For they being ignorant, you know, you can be sincere and wrong. There are many people out there believe all kinds of things, and they're sincere. But you can be sincerely wrong. Sincerity is not evidence of proof, of truth. For they were ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. That means God's method of bringing His righteousness to us. They were trying to earn it by keeping the law. They would not submit to just receiving it as a free gift. For Christ is the end or the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes, now look at this, that the righteousness which is of the law... There's two, two ways you can become righteous in God's eyes. One is to keep the law. But here's the problem with that. That the man who does these things shall live by them. In other words, the law requires that if you're going to be justified by, by your own efforts, then you've got to do it perfectly 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 52 weeks a year for your entire life. Not starting now, starting when you first breathed. Well, that's what Paul makes clear earlier in this letter we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there's another method of righteousness, which is by faith in Christ. And that's what he refers to in verse 6. But righteousness, which is of faith, or received by faith, speaks this way. Notice it talks. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to pre bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, he said, the righteousness that was, comes from God by faith in Christ, and he's referring to some scriptures from, in Deuteronomy 30, does not say, well, let's go up and bring Christ down from heaven, or let's go bring him up from the abyss. In other words, you don't have to go get him some, from somewhere. There's nothing you can do to bring him here. There's nothing you have to go do to get him here. He's already here. There's, there's nothing left for him to do. He's done what he's going to do. So all that's left is to receive what he's done. That's basically what he's saying here. Okay. But what does it say? Righteousness that's given by faith. The word is near you. The what? Word. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith. 
that we preach. It's not about how people receive this light, this truth. And he said, you don't have to go get it from somewhere. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It's right here. It's waiting for you to speak. In other words, God's done His part. He's just waiting on you, and what He's waiting on you to do is to speak something. Verse 9. And here's what we're to speak. But if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead... You will be saved. For with a heart, this is the process by which an unbeliever receives Christ. With a heart, one believes unto righteousness. What he's not saying, you're believing, you believe righteousness. It's your faith in Christ that he then attributes his righteousness to you. That's what he's talking about. But that's what you believe in your heart. And with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. It takes both. Believing that Christ has paid for your sins and then with your mouth confessing Him as your Lord, that's what brings you salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Greek or Jew. Jew or Greek. For the same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon Him. Look at this. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. All right, we all understand that. That's how people receive their salvation. Not by works that they do. It's not by climbing hills or climbing on their knees over glass. It's not by all, you know, being sorry for everything that's involved in repentance. But it's believing in your heart that Jesus paid the price for your sins. And then with your mouth receiving Him by declaring Him to be your Savior and Lord. It takes both of those things. That's what He's teaching here. Now, here's our part. This is where it becomes important. to what We're talking about catching fish, remember. Verse 14. How shall they call on Him whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher. Now, don't get hung up with the word preacher. That doesn't mean somebody that stands in a pulpit. It means a proclaimer. The word preach just means to proclaim. So the progression is here. In order to receive, for their eyes to be open, for the blinders to come off, and for them to see the truth, they have to believe something in their heart. That Jesus paid the price for their sins on that cross 2,000 years ago. And then they have to take action. They have to declare with their mouth that He is now their Savior. And they receive it. They believe it. And then they receive it by the words they say. But now He says, how are they going to call on Him in whom they've not believed? They may know who He is but they've not believed on Him as the one that paid for their sins. How are they calling Him if they've not, going to be, if they've not believed? And now how will they believe if they've not heard? And how will they hear, basically, unless someone tells them? So let's, that's kind of the backward progression. Let's go forward. Unless somebody tells them, they won't hear. And unless they hear, they can't believe. And unless they believe, they won't call on Him. Even though He's paid for it and the Word is near them. The salvation for your unsaved relatives. The salvation for those that you work with that aren't saved. The salvation for your unsaved. It's here. It's not waiting for something to happen. It's waiting for them to simply call on Him, believe in Him in their heart, and call on Him. It's that simple. I got a letter from somebody once because the altar call I give usually says, I, you know, I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. And they said, well, can't. The letter was, well, it's not that simple. But it is. Why? Because it's here. He's here. He's not in heaven. You've got to get Him down. 
He's not down at the gate of hell. You've got to call him up from. He's here. He's here. He's, he's, he's as close as the, as the tongue and the lips of their mouth. Just waiting to be called upon. But Paul's teaching, they won't call until they believe that he's going to answer. And how will they believe he's going to answer if somebody hasn't told them? And how is somebody going to tell them if they don't go and declare it? Now remember, it's about the light of the truth. We just read it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's about the light of the truth of the gospel that was, that's in us shining on them. And God released that light. How? With words of His mouth. So how do we release the same light, the same truth? With words of our mouth. The light's in us. The truth's in us. That's what we looked at last week. So many of us are looking, well, I'm inadequate, I don't know enough, I'm not enough. It has nothing to do with you. All God needs us to do is open this thing. And He'll fill it. Just open it. And begin to speak words. And watch what happens. Because we don't have to make something, we don't have to produce anything, make anything happen. We just have, it's like, it's like being in a room where the, where, where the atmosphere is filled with gasoline fumes. What's the one thing you don't do? Light a match. match. <laughs> Why? It takes just, because the fumes are there. The light is there. The power is there. The need is there. It's all there. Just waiting for a... To strike the... the, the, Just to strike a a simple little spark. And the Spirit of God... We'll learn that next time. The Spirit of God is there to take it and to do what you and I can't do. But we're going to see today there's something He can't do that we have to do. And how shall they preach unless they're sent? Last December, I got up. It was right before Christmas or after Christmas on a Sunday morning, and I don't know what it was. I was fighting in my body, but I realized I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do the services. So I called Pastor Ray at the last minute, and he came in and did a great job. And I'm sitting up, got up a little later on, was sitting with my Bible, and I just happened to open to here, and I started reading down here, and God began to talk to me. And I hit verse 15. It says, and how shall they preach unless they're sent? And I heard inside of me as clearly as I've ever heard anything. That's your purpose. That's why you're here. It's to send us out. How will they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach, proclaim the gospel, the good news of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Now let's stop there. I want to take a look at an example of this that I was reading through a while ago and it just struck me. Go with me to Acts chapter 10. This is a story of a, of a Roman officer named Cornelius. Now the fact that he's a Roman means he was not a Jew. He was not part of the covenant of Israel of what Paul refers to as the commonwealth of Israel, the fellowship of Israel. He had no rights under the, under the Old Testament covenant law. He had no rights at all. But, God, but his heart was towards God. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian regiment. So he's a Roman officer. A devout man who feared God or reverenced God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always, which put him ahead of most of the church. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. So this angel in a vision has been sent in answer to his prayers. And here's what the angel says. Now send men to Joppa. Now he was in Caesarea. It's about on the coast of Israel, about 40 miles or so north of Joppa. Send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. 
he is lodging with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea, and he will tell you what you must do. When the angel of the Lord spoke to him, he departed. Cornelius called two of his household servants, a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. And when he explained all these things to them, he sent them down to Joppa. The next day, now we're going to switch scenes, scene number two. We're now down in Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and drew near to the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray. The tops of their house were flat. About the sixth hour, it's about lunchtime. And he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while he was making ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open up and an object like a great sheet bound with four corners descending to him, let down to the earth. This is the vision he's having. And all and in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts and creeping things and birds of the air. These are foods that under the, under the Old Testament were unclean. He was not allowed to eat them. And now they're on this sheath that's being lowered down in a vision that's coming from God. And a voice called to him and said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's horrified at this. He says, No, so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything this, un- this common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again a second time, saying, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now stop here a second. In the story we've read so far, we've had angels speak twice to men. Once an angel spoke to Cornelius, and now one speaking to Peter. They're speaking words. Just follow me here. All right, let's go on. Verse 16. This was done three times, and the object was taken up to heaven. Now, while Peter was wondering or, wondering or pondering about this within himself, what the vision was, what he'd seen, what it meant, behold, the men who were sent from Cornelius had come and made inquiry. So they've now arrived at Simon's house. Verse 19. While Peter was thinking about the vision, here's another thing. The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men who had been, seen, uh, had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he who you seek. For what reason have you come? Uh, the Spirit just told him. And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nations of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear what words from you. And that he invited them in and lodged with them. And the next day Peter went with them and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Now the following day, when they entered Caesarea, and Cornelius was waiting for them, and called together his relatives and close friends, and Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet, and worshipped him. Peter lifted him up and said, Stand up, I myself am also just a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found they had come together. And he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go into another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man uncommon or clean. By the way, that's still God's view today. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, spoke words, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. And when he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Then Peter opened his... Peter opened his... He opened his mouth. Peter contained what they needed. But he had to open his mouth. Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. That word you know and was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism John was preached how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, let's go down to 
verse 44. While Peter was still speaking those words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. That's the Jews. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anybody forbid water that these should not be baptized who had received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and they asked him to stay a few days. What an amazing story. I was reading through this one day, and it suddenly hit me. Here's Cornelius over here, devout man. Up one day, he's fasting all day, praying, seeking God, loves the Lord, reverences him, is a giver, generous, but he has no covenant with God. And he doesn't even maybe know what he's asking for, but he's crying out to God. Over here, we got Peter staying with Simon the Tanner by the sea, taking maybe a little rest down by a sea resort with Simon the Tanner. Just, you know, and he's waiting for lunch to get fixed, to be fixed. Go back over. We're going back down. down up. Actually, that's Caesarea over here. Excuse me. Caesarea is up north. This is, this is, everybody switch around now. This is, this is, this is where, this is Caesarea. This is where uh, the centurion is. This is where uh, uh, um, Cornelius is. Thank you. Okay. All right. Cornelius is praying, fasting, asking God. And while he's doing that, an angel appears to him. Now, this angel's not mute. He can speak because he speaks words to Cornelius and says, I have come in answer to your prayers. And here's God's answer. There's a man over here in Joppa. His name is Simon. And he's staying with, his name is Peter, he's staying with a man named Simon who's a tanner. And he has the words you need to hear. Now, just a second. Cornelius is asking a question. He's crying out from within him. He wants to be saved. He doesn't know how. an angel sent from God. And the angel can speak, can give him instructions. And he does. He says, you need to send to Jaffa because there's a man there who needs to come and tell you what you must do. Same time, Peter's up waiting for lunch. Just being in God's presence And he has a vision. And in this vision, a sheet comes down with all kinds of unclean things on there. And then he's pondering that. And he hears a voice speak to him and says, Arise and eat. And he says, Oh, no, I know. This is a test. (laughs) I'm not doing that. Three times. And when that's done, the Spirit of God speaks to him and says, There are men coming right now because there's a man over there in Caesarea who's asked to find out what he's got to do. You're supposed to go with these men. So you got over here Cornelius asking. God sends an angel. The angel tells him what he's got to do. I'm glad it's not 40 miles. So are you. Peter's here. In answer to that prayer, God gives him a vision and the Spirit of God speaks to him, telling him to go with them. So the men come, spend the night. Peter goes with them all the way back to Caesarea. And when he gets there, he says, what did you call for me to do? I ask this question. If God can send an angel from heaven in answer to his prayer, why didn't the angel tell him what to do? 
You got a holy angel, supernatural representative of God in all his glory, telling, giving an answer to Cornelius. God, in answer to that, also sends a vision three times to Peter and has the Spirit of God speak to him, telling him he's got to leave there and go all the way back, all the way up to Caesarea to do the very thing that the angel could have done. Why? You've got supernatural manifestations all over the place. Why doesn't God answer his prayer by an angel or by a vision? Because obviously they were there doing things. Because God has ordained. God has not put his glory in angels or in sheets that come down from heaven. God had deposited that light, that truth, that revelation, that glory, God had deposited that in Peter. And though you've got an angel over there, that angel doesn't have, oh, this is good, the angel doesn't have what it takes. God's deposited what it takes in Peter. So what God has to do is have a vision and the Holy Spirit speak so that Peter will take what he contains out of Joppa and go north and bring it to Caesarea. There's an angel there. But it's still not enough that he brings what he has there. He's got to open his mouth and speak words. Why? Because unless Cornelius hears the words, he will, cannot believe. And unless he believes, he cannot call upon the name of the Lord. As much as he had a strong desire to get, be saved, he couldn't do it until words had been spoken to him. Words of life. Words of life. Words of truth. By a man even though an angel was already present. So it's not just what God wants to do. He's limited in what He can do because for whatever reason, He's chosen to take this treasure and put it in crack pots like you and me. But it can be in you till you're full to the fullest. But until we open our mouth and release that truth, that light, they can't get it. Why? Because the next verse in Romans, verse 17 says, For faith comes by angels and visions and supernatural occurrences. No, it doesn't. It says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We use that verse for increasing our faith and growing our faith. But the faith he's talking about there is not increasing our faith. It's the faith, and that is true, but it's the faith by which we believe to begin with the truth that God has paid for your sins on that cross by the shedding of His Son's blood, that if you will receive His Son by believing with your heart that God paid for your sins through Him and not through anything you can do and will declare with your mouth Him as Lord, then you will be saved. But how are they going to believe unless they hear the truth? And how will they hear the truth unless we tell them and how will we tell them unless we're sent and God chose you John 15 to follow him so that he could send you into your world to take the light 
of the reality of the glory and the goodness and the love and the grace of God and to let it leak out of you and open your mouth and share. It's shocking how many people there are in our community around us, especially young people who don't know who Jesus is. We're not talking about China. We're not talking about some third world country. We're talking about Seekonk, Providence, Barrington, wherever your community is. There are people, especially young people around you, who they don't know who he is. They don't know that he died for their sins. They don't know that he's real. And they won't know unless someone tells them. And that's our assignment. That's the bait we have. It's not who you are or who I am. It's the grace and love of Jesus Christ that's been put in us is the bait we have on the hook. God's not going to send angels. There may be, super, there may be unusual situations. God's not going to send angels. He's, not going to, he's sending you and he's sending me. And we already have what it takes. We're going to begin to talk about some other aspects of this starting next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today. It's incredible that you would use us, Lord. We're so aware of our own weaknesses. We're so aware of of things that we may be struggling with in our own lives. But you're not relying on us. You're relying on our willingness to simply share, to tell what you have done for us. So we thank you, Father, today that you've entrusted this to us. We ask you to open our eyes to see the situations this week around us, that we can just do what Jesus did with the woman at the well, begin a conversation with somebody, and allow you by your spirit to guide it and to give us the insight and wisdom of what to say and what not to say, and that you'll do the rest. And we thank you, Father, for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen.